Good morning. My name is Jake Bauer. I work here at the Boulder campus in the middle school ministry, and I'm grateful to be here. Uh, middle school ministry is my favorite job in the world. Couldn't be happier to work with them. And a couple weeks ago, we went to Maranatha. There's a photo on the screen of our campus in particular. So look at all those smiling faces. We had a really, really good time. And this trip in particular was, I got home, and that Sunday I had a friend ask me how it went and how I was feeling, and I said, I'm exhausted, first of all. And then I said, but I'm refreshed. Like, that was really how I felt after that trip was just God was doing awesome things in middle schoolers' lives. We had three kids get baptized, as was mentioned last week, and it was sweet to see kind of the uh, peak of relationship building in the last two years for some of our students. And it just come out in that trip. So thanks for supporting the middle school ministry. It's really a pleasure working with them. And if you see any of the faces on this screen in this room today, you should go ask them how Maranatha went for them. So it's a pleasure to be here with you this morning. I'm going to pray as we enter the word for our time. Father, we give this time to you. We pray as we sit in your word now that you would meet us here. I pray, Lord, specifically as we're talking about the Spirit, uh, that He would be clear and manifest in our lives this week, and that now, even in this time, Lord, any hearts that, aren't, that are resistant to Your Spirit, Lord, would You soften them by Your touch. We thank You. In Your name we pray. Amen. So this summer we've been in a series called This We Believe, and the idea of this series is we've been going through uh, Christian beliefs. And what, what do Christians believe What are the fundamentals of Christian beliefs? And maybe some of these have not been new for you, but it's good to refresh ourselves and say, what do we really believe about who God is? And this morning, we're asking the question, what would it look like to live in relationship with the triune God? The last three weeks, we've spent time looking at the Father, the Son, and the Spirit, and reflecting on what does it mean that God is triune, that he is Father, that he is Son, that he is Spirit. And this week, we're asking the question, well, what does it look like to be in relationship with him? If this is who God is, who are we when we come into relationship with him? And I personally am not much of a sports watcher. I don't watch sports on my own. I don't follow any teams in particular. But I've always grown up around people who watch sports. And so in the same home as me, I'll come home and someone will be watching a sport and I'll try to ignore it. And then want to spend time with them and sit down reluctantly. But I don't watch sports myself, grown up around people who do. And in my house currently, one of my roommates watches Liverpool soccer. And sometimes I'll come home, and I'll walk upstairs, and he'll be on the couch watching a game. And I'll hear things. I'll hear things that he says. And he'll say things like, shoot the ball, shoot the ball, shoot the ball. Or pass the ball. Or that was such a bad play. Why would you do that? And his hand will go to his forehead like that. And he'll say, that, they should have done this, not that. And he'll yell things at the field and at the players, or or just say them in sadness when they don't do what they should have done. And sometimes when I walk up there, maybe, maybe you can relate to this scene. Maybe you're the person on the couch, or maybe you're the spouse of that person. But sometimes, let's say I walk upstairs and see him sitting on the couch, saying those things to the screen. And I look at him. I say, oh my gosh, Nathan. You're, you're a professional Liverpool soccer player. Can I get your autograph? Can I get your autograph? Clearly, you know exactly how to play the sport. Right? What would be the issue there? 
Well, oftentimes we find ourselves the master of things that we don't actually do. Right? The master of games that we don't actually play. Just because I know a lot about Liverpool or a lot about soccer doesn't make me Lionel Messi. Right? doesn't make me a professional to know a lot about a sport. And in fact, knowing a lot about a sport is very different than playing it. And for me to assume the man on the couch yelling at the screen knows how to play the game is a false assumption. And the truth is that this applies to our spiritual lives as well. That we've been learning a lot about who is this God? Who is God? He's the Father, He's the Son, and the Spirit. And there are in this world couch Christians. They're couch Christians who know a lot about who is God and what is he like, but they're not on the field. Right? They're not playing the sport. And so what we seek to be this morning is not the Christians on the couch who can say a lot of true things about who God is, but instead it's to be the Christians on the field who know who God is and are playing the game. How do we do this? How do we actually do this? I said, what does it look like to live in relationship with the triune God? It doesn't mean we're on the couch. It means we're on the field. But how do we do this? Well, if you would turn to Galatians 5 with me, then we can look together. Galatians chapter 5, it's in the New Testament after 2 Corinthians. If you're unfamiliar, there's a table of contents in the front of your Bible as well. Galatians chapter 5. The book of Galatians is about freedom. That's kind of the main point of the book. It's written to a group of churches in Galatia who are having their Christian freedom threatened. And what this specifically means is that there's a group of teachers coming in and saying that the gospel is faith and. The gospel is faith and. And that is the uh, teaching that Paul writes against. That it's not faith and, but the gospel is faith and alone, that we're saved by faith in Jesus Christ, by his grace alone, and that there's nothing added to that. But what these uh, false teachers are teaching is that, okay, to be saved, yes, you need a relationship with Jesus, but also you need to be circumcised, or you need to follow these traditional days of ritual, or you need to do these practices in order to be saved. And Paul writes the letter of Galatians to say that is not true. It's not true. The gospel is faith, period. In verse 13, he takes kind of a different direction. It says this, For you were called to freedom, brothers. Uh, chapter 5, chapter 5, verse 13. You were called to freedom, brothers. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. What Paul's set up here is he says, You have this freedom, you're forgiven, you are justified only by faith in Christ, but... Don't use that freedom and make grace cheap. Don't use that freedom and live a life in sin, but be transformed by the grace you've received. And that's what we're talking about today. That's where we find ourselves in this book is, well, what does it look like to live a transformed life, life in the freedom that we receive from the gospel? And what I think we're going to learn from Galatians 5 is that the answer to the question of how do we be on the field rather than on the couch is we live spirit-led lives. We live spirit-led lives. And we'll talk today about, first, what is life like apart from the Spirit? For those who aren't living spirit-led lives, what, is, what does that look like? 
What is life like in the Spirit? What is life like when it is defined and identifies itself in the Spirit? And finally, how do we do this? Like, how do we actually practically do this when we go to work or to the house this week? How do we live Spirit-led lives? First, what is life like apart from the Spirit? If you look at verse 16 with me, it says, But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. These two are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do. In the Bible, oftentimes the word walk is used just to mean live. Live by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For those of us who didn't maybe grow up in the church, when we hear the word flesh, we might not know exactly what he's saying. Flesh can be just defined as desires and actions contrary to God's will. Desires and actions contrary to God's will. And so if we're walking in the Spirit, we are not gratifying the desires that are contrary to God's will. So if we have, if we are Christians, we believe that God has revealed His will to us in the Bible. And then He's made clear to us what does it look like to live a life that's pleasing to Him. And to do the opposite of that, is to live in the flesh. And so he says here that the desires of the flesh are contrasting to the desires of the Spirit, and that to walk in the Spirit means that we put to death the desires that are contrary to God's will. I grew up in Florida. We used to go to Cracker Barrel all the time with my family, and there I would always, in that beginning shop section, find those little sets of magnets, and they were my favorite for some reason. That was the toy I chose. And I would take them home, and one of my favorite things to do was to take the opposite ends of the magnets, the north and the south, and try to put them together. And what happens when you do? They repel. Right? They inherently cannot be put together. You try to put them together, and they just repel from one another. And I had so much fun doing that. And what Paul is saying is that the desires of the spirit and the desires of the flesh are like that. They cannot come together. They repel from each other naturally. That by design, when we're walking in the Spirit, we're not in the flesh, and vice versa. In Romans 8, Paul puts it this way. He says, to set the mind on the flesh is death. But to set the mind on the Spirit is life and peace. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God. It does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it can't. Those who are in the flesh cannot please I think sometimes maybe we like to think of the world as there's like this group of neutral people, right? Not just spirit and flesh, but there's also those who they're maybe not following God on their own, but they're not really opposed to him. That's not really what we see here. What we see is there is no neutral or passive individual in this world. We're, we're either carrying out desires of the flesh or the desires of the spirit. To be in the flesh is to be hostile to God, not passive toward him, but against him. Paul gives us a list of the flesh in 19 through 21. He says this. The works of the flesh are evident. They're clear. They they, they don't need to be explained. We see them and notice them in our world. They are sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. And so he gives us this list, and it's a harsh list, a, a clear list, and we might see these things in the world, 
And then he gives us a warning and says this, I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. Oftentimes when I'm driving, I'm using my CarPlay mode on my car, and on the superior navigation app, Apple Maps, what will oftentimes come up, <laughs> what will oftentimes come up is a little thing that will say, speed check ahead, speed check ahead. And what that's communicating to me is, hey, someone submitted a report about a police officer being here. Maybe someone got pulled off over, and if you're speeding, you should slow down. And so maybe if I'm speeding, I, which I'm not, then I'll tap the brakes a little bit. And Paul here gives us something similar. This speed check ahead. This is my warning for you. That if you're carrying out these desires, if this is where you're living, if this is the path you are going down, it's time to tap the brakes. Because look at this list, and if you find yourself in it, if this is where we find ourselves, I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. That a lifestyle in the flesh is characterized by those works, and the results are that it is not inheriting what God gives to us, his good kingdom. So we start asking, what is a life without the spirit like? And it's grim. It's a grim picture. That's not where we want to sit today. What we actually want to answer is, what is life like in the Spirit? For those of us who have received God's Spirit, which if you're a Christian in this room, if you put your faith in Jesus, you have the Spirit. This is unconditional. It comes to you if you put your faith in Jesus. So what is life like for us who are in the Spirit? Verse 22. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Against such things there is no law. What is life like in the Spirit? Well, exhibits the fruit of the Spirit. And if you've grown up in the church and you hear this list or even the phrase fruit of the Spirit, maybe you carry a little baggage with you and something goes off in your mind and it sounds like the fruit of the Spirit's not a coconut. If you're familiar, I remember hearing that song when I was a kid and wondering why they chose coconut, the least clear fruit of all time. He says, regardless, the fruit of the Spirit is not a coconut. It is love, joy, peace, patience, etc. These are the fruit of the Spirit. And sometimes when we read a list like this, our tendency is to read a to-do list. Say, okay, fruit of the Spirit is love. I need to be more loving. Through the Spirit is joy. Be more joyful. But the problem is, if we do that, we start to realize in ourselves, well, sometimes I'm not very joyful. Sometimes I'm not very loving. Sometimes I'm not very patient. So this list doesn't feel encouraging to me. It actually feels the opposite. And we have to ask, what is the point of this list? Is it just a to-do list for us to follow? I don't think so. I think a better way to think about it is, well, the same way that we think about when people identify with anything. If I asked you the question, what are baristas like? Someone who works at a coffee shop. I said, what is a barista like? You might be able to name some really clear things. They might be sort of stylish. They might be a little pretentious, have a lot of opinions, right? But generally hospitable. You could tell me, what is a barista like? Or what is a person from the South like? Polite, kind, they cook grits, right? So you can tell me, what is a person from the South like? Or maybe, what are Coloradans like? You probably summarize that in one phrase, they talk a lot about Colorado, right? What are Colorado, Coloradans like? 
And that's what I think Paul is doing with this list. Is he's saying, what are Christians like? What are people in the Spirit, people who have God's Spirit, what are they like? If I, if I was to ask you, what, what, Christ, what does it mean to be a Christian? What is it like to be a Christian? We might read this list and say, well, Christians, they, they're people who are full of the fruit of the Spirit. And those fruit are love, joy, peace, patience. That's what it's like as a Christian is to be a Christian is to be full of the fruit of the Spirit. And to be clear, it is the fruit of the Spirit, not the fruits of the Spirit. In the original text, it's the same way. It's a singular fruit. It's not as though we choose and pick one of these fruits to focus on and we say, you know, I'm going to exhibit the fruit of patience in my life this week. I'm going to work on that one. But it's more this idea that this is a holistic, singular lifestyle that flows out of the Christian's life when we are in the Spirit. That when God's Spirit is in our hearts and our lives, He shapes us into all of these things. And it's not as though we can be kind without being patient or good without being faithful. But to be a Christian is to embody all of these things. And to have God's Spirit is to have the fruit of the Spirit. So now we have to ask the most important question of all, which is how? How do we do this? We know what a life in the flesh is like. We don't want that. That's, that's grim. We know what a life in the spirit is like, but is my life like that? Do I feel like that? How do I actually follow God in his spirit in my life? And that's where we'll spend the rest of our time today. Before that, it does say, verse 23, against such things there is no law. And here's the good news about following a lifestyle like this is that there's no law against this lifestyle. R.C. Sproul puts it this way. He says, he says, there's no rule against being kind. God doesn't command that we never be gentle. There's no law against tender mercy and long-suffering. We never have to fear the consequences of the law of God when we walk not in the flesh, but in the spirit. So this is the kind of lifestyle we want. It's one that's free from condemnation and finds itself without consequence, because who gets mad at you when you're loving, right? So how do we actually do it? How do we live spirit-led lives? Well, look at verse 24 with me. It says, those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. So the first way that we live spirit-led lives is we deny our old way of life. We deny the flesh that was who we are, that's now killed, it's now crucified. We deny that part of our life. And to be clear, what this is not saying is that we no longer have those desires. In verse 16, it says this, But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. The force here is that when we walk by the Spirit, not that you won't have, the desires of the flesh, but you won't gratify them. That when you have them, you won't say yes to them. That will actually deny these desires. In high school, I played lacrosse. There was a particular game where both teams were getting a little heated, and there was one player in particular who I was bothered by. And there was a, a moment in the game where he fouled me pretty severely, and I got up and I was, I was angry. He kept shooting glances at me the rest of the game, and, and I actually tried to follow him back. And so we, our tempers are rising, and 
they beat us, and at the end of the game, we're shaking hands, and when he comes to me, my heart's kind of beating, he shakes my hand, and he goes, great game, bro. But it wasn't meaning great game, bro, right? And so our tempers are rising. In that situation, I remember feeling like if there was ever a moment in my life where I want to fight a person, it's now. Right? That was my desire. It was, I just wanted to come up to that guy and talk him in the face, right? But if I had come to my coach at the end of that game and said to him, Coach, I had this desire to hit this other guy on the team. I'm so angry, and, and I'm really sorry. I, I lost my temper. I, I was really angry. I had that desire. Coach would treat that one way, and he'd say, yeah, we need to control our tempers. It's not worth it, right? But if I came to the coach and said to him, Coach, I punched the other guy on the team, or the other team in the face, right? If I said, Coach, I, I came up to the other guy. I was so angry. I just let him have it. I punched him. He would treat that really differently than just the desire to do that thing. And Paul is saying here, walk by the Spirit, and we will not gratify the desires of the flesh. Again, the more we walk with God, the more our desires are conformed to his, the more that we hate evil and love good, and yet we, throughout our whole lives, battle. Our whole lives are a constant battleground between the flesh and the spirit. So he says, the first way is that we deny the old way of living. If you belong to Christ Jesus, now the identity that we have is found in him. No longer is our identity with that list in the flesh. Even if we see those things in our lives, it doesn't make us those things. Instead, we are belonging to Christ. We've been given a new identity, and what we're being asked to do is to live into that identity, live into what's true about us already. There's this old story that I heard recently again about Alexander the Great and his, uh, his empire and what would happen is they would set up throughout the night in his empire these sentries on posts, on night shifts. And what, what would happen is if a sentry fell asleep on the shift, the consequences were that they would be doused in kerosene and burned. That was the consequences. And it was severe because at stake was thousands of people's lives. So if a sentry fell asleep, they were putting to risk thousands of other people's lives. So they wanted the consequences to be severe. And Alexander the Great, as the story goes, walked out of his bedroom one evening because he could not sleep. And in the middle of the night, he walked and stumbled upon a sentry who was asleep in this position. And he stormed up to him, furious. And he, he woke him up and said, Soldier, what is your name? And startled, the soldier woke up, terrified, looking at his general in the face, knowing that he had fallen asleep on the shift. And he said, Alexander. And Alexander the Great got angrier. He said, soldier, what is your name? And this soldier is now trembling. He's afraid. He says, it's Alexander, sir. For the third time, Alexander the Great, all the angrier, says to him, soldier, tell me your name. And the soldier said to him, Alexander. And Alexander took one look at the soldier and said to him, either change your name or change your conduct. Either change your name or change your conduct. And the idea there is you have this great name. You have my name. Live into it. And that's what we see in the Spirit. If you are in Christ, if you've put your faith in Christ, your name is Christian. Your name is belonging to Jesus. It's the identity you have now. And what we're told is when we live in the flesh, when those things are the things that are consistent in our lives, we're actually not living into the name we've been 
given. And so as Christians, we're given a new name. We're given the name of Jesus, and now we get to walk in that name. The first way we do it is by denying the desires of our old nature. One way this plays out is that we confess our sins. Not that we're sinless. Again, we're not sinless, but we confess our sins. We have a really new relationship to our sins. People who aren't in Jesus aren't going to find themselves condemned by their sins in the way that we are guilty over their sins, in the way that we as Christians will, because the Spirit will tell us, hey, this isn't right in your life. Or this isn't consistent with the name you've been given. So it's time to bring that before the Lord and bring that before others. So when we hurt other people, when we are short-tempered, rather than falling into or wallowing in shame, rather we say, Lord, I'm sorry. I'm sorry, this isn't consistent with the name I've been given, and I'm sorry towards this person I've reconciled with them, and now, Lord, I reconcile with you, and he is just and faithful to forgive us. And so that's the first part. We deny our old selves and, and get rid of the old selves in our lives. We no longer live in that. And number two, we keep in step with the Spirit. Verse 25 says, if we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking one another, envying one another. Now, the Spirit is a person. Thomas said this several weeks ago. And when I hear keep in step with the Spirit, my mind again goes to the abstract, and I go, what does that even mean practically in our lives? But if we think of the Spirit like a person, and we ask, what does it mean to keep in step with any person? It might give us a sense of what it means to keep in step with the Spirit. So what does it mean to keep in step with someone when you go on a walk with them? It means you're not running ahead. You're not lagging behind. Where they turn, you turn with them. You're side by side, keeping in step at the same speed with one another. This is the same with the Spirit, who is a person. How do we keep in step with the Spirit? Well, we walk side by side with him. We don't go ahead and make our own version of righteousness. We don't leave the Bible behind us and say, this is what it means to live in righteousness. And at the same time, we don't lag behind. We read God's word, and we learn what does it look like to live a life that's pleasing to him from him. So to keep in step with the Spirit means that we walk side by side with the Spirit. And one way to do this is to ask this question day to day, moment to moment. What does it look like in this moment to be aligned with the fruit of the Spirit? What does it look like for me in this moment to align myself with God's fruit, with the spiritual fruit? So when my spouse is being stubborn in an argument and I don't feel like I can muster patience in myself or maybe I'm being stubborn and we're just disagreeing, just missing each other, what does the fruit of the Spirit in that moment look like? Is it irritability? The fruit of the Spirit's not irritability. It's patience and gentleness. And in those moments of disagreement, it's saying, what does it mean to live into the identity I've been given? It means here I answer with, answer with gentleness rather than anger. Or maybe when I come across something on social media that I find enticing, and I'm just scrolling and it wasn't on purpose, what does the fruit of the Spirit look like in that moment? Does it look like lingering and gratifying the desires of the flesh? Or does it look like self-control and closing the app? What does the fruit of the Spirit look like in our day-to-day moments? Perhaps one final example, you pull up in the Target parking lot and your son slams open the door into the car beside. There's two options there. There's the option of patience 
or there is the option of anger. What does the Spirit look like in those moments? What does the fruit of the Spirit say about how those who live in the Spirit would live in that moment? And so keeping in step with the Spirit means constantly asking ourselves the question, what does the Spirit require of me? And what does the Spirit look like in these moments of my life? And if we're asking this question, we'll find ourselves on a day-to-day basis constantly knowing what is the fruit of the Spirit like. Remember, the works of the flesh are evident. It's clear in that moment I know exactly what it would be like to have a fleshly response to this. But what is the fruit of the Spirit like? And finally, the third thing that walking with the Spirit means, that living Spirit-led lives means, is we remember the origin of the fruit where did they come from? We remember where the fruit of the Spirit is from. If I asked anyone in the city of Boulder who, who didn't go to church, who wasn't a Christian, hey, what are, what are virtues that everyone should have in life? What, what does it mean to be a good person in this world? They might actually list some of these, right? They might say, love, you know, you're full of joy, you're patient with others, you're gentle. They probably wouldn't say things like, hate, hostility, mean, right? No one would say that's what it means to be a good person. And so where did this list come from if it's similar to what everyone's idea of good is? Where did the fruit of the Spirit come from? The answer is in the name. It's the fruit of the Spirit. And who is the Spirit? The Spirit is God. God is these fruits. So if we think about the fruit of the Spirit, apart from thinking of God, we actually miss the whole picture. For us to really think about the fruit of the Spirit is for us to think about who is God and what does it mean that he's inside of me? What does it mean that my life is completely transformed by him? And we start picturing God as these fruit, which means that the fruit of the Spirit is love. God is love. He is loving foremost toward us. He sent his son for us. He he loves us more than we can understand. God is joy. He is an eternal, self-existent joy. In his presence is the fullness of joy. God is patient. He's not hasty to punish. He's actually slow to anger and merciful. He's gentle. A bruised weed, a bruised reed he will not break. A smoldering wick he will not put out. He's a gentle God who treats us with the tenderness of a caring father. So when we think about these fruit of the Spirit, we should think foremost about who is God and how does that relate to us? Well, John 14 says this. It says, this is Jesus speaking, I will ask the Father, he will give you another helper to be with you forever, even the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive, because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him. For he dwells with you and will be in you. So if God is these fruits, and we're told specifically by Jesus, listen, the Spirit, he's going to dwell in you. What he's saying there is God is in you. And God is these fruit, and that's where these fruit come from. It doesn't come from us mustering up and trying harder and just working harder to be better people. It doesn't from us come from us just trying to exhibit virtues in this world. It comes from us saying, Oh my gosh, God is loving toward me. Look at this God who is so loving, who is so compassionate, who is so gentle, and he's, he's in me. 
I can live in his ways because he's my helper. He's in me, and his spirit is helping me through every day-to-day moment of my life. So what does it look like to live life in relationship with this triune God? What does it look like to be not on the couch, but on the field? It looks like living spirit-led lives. And what that means is we deny the old ways and we put on Christ. We keep in step with his spirit by asking the question, what is the fruit of the spirit in this moment? And we must always remember foremost that the fruit of the spirit is found in God himself. And for us to exhibit these fruit is for us to ask for his mercy and his help in our need. So pray for us that we can do that this week. It is good news that you are these things foremost, Lord. We don't take it for granted that you're not by nature a God of wrath, a God of quickness to anger, or a God of temper, but you're a God of patience and gentleness and mercy. And I pray, Lord, for anyone in this room who deals with their own struggles of seeing these things in their lives, that you would remind them of who they belong to. That you would remind us foremost that we are yours, And that that's where our identity is found, Lord. And and that that is where these characteristics come from. So may we walk in your spirit this week and be led by him. In your name we pray. Amen.